theyeshiva.net. Good evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mrs. Monk. And thank you to uh, this incredible school, Shalamit, for this privilege and invitation to be able to address you. I know most of you or all of you are part of the parent body. And uh, I hear from the principal that most of your children are smiling much of the day. So that's good news. That's excellent news. It's probably what we crave for most, that our children should feel safe, content, satisfied, accomplished, proud, and loved in their schools. And the fact that Shulamit reached this milestone of extraordinary growth, both in the elementary girls' school and in the high school, to the point that there is now this great need and yearning for a whole new edifice, a whole new infrastructure, a whole new space for the high school, really warrants a great mazel tov of shachiyonu v'kimonu v'gayonu l'zman hazeh to see such growth in our educational infrastructures, especially in this glorious community of the five towns. And I am privileged and proud to be part of this evening. Recess? Great. I'm done. (laughs) Dismissed. You behaved very well. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for gracing us with your presence here. And uh, thank you to Shalamit and thank you to all of the donors and supporters and all of the parents and, uh, of course, all of the students, the Talmidites. They tell an anecdote about a rabbi who loved giving sermons about how you have to respect your children, cherish them and value them and confer respect on them speak to them with sensitivity and understanding and empathy. One day, they were paving his alleyway, his driveway, and there was fresh new pavement on the ground, and the children on the block, when they see an opportunity to leave an imprint on this world, they seize it. And hence, they immediately began engraving all interesting types of messages and their names, And the rabbi coming out on the porch sees what's happening, and he loses it. He begins hollering at these kids, no respect, no discipline, chaotic people, right? Or in the good old expression, chayas royas, behemoths, disgusting, such chutzpah, such disdain. He's screaming on top of his lungs, and his wife, the Rebetzin, comes out, and says, Yankel, Yankel, relax, relax. You could say it nicely. You're the one who always speaks in shul about how we have to love children and be sensitive to them and respect them and communicate to them in a way that is sensitive. And he looks at his wife. Okay, so strike two. Let's see what happens after strike three. He looks at his Rebetzin and he says, you know, my dear wife, I love children in the abstract, not when they are in the concrete. The world, the world of education, there's a lot of lectures out there about education. A lot of rabbis, 
and a lot of people from all walks of life who preach <laughs> about chinuch, but very often it's in the abstract. When it comes to the concrete, when it comes to real day-to-day life, and when the children are in the concrete, making their mark on the concrete, often it's easy to lose it. It's easy to be derailed, to get deterred from what we really want and who we really are. And this evening, an evening dedicated to opening the doors of our daughter's hearts and our daughter's souls, and ultimately opening the doors for a new Shulamit high school, for those who have children in the high school, or for those who will have children one day in the high school, because according to the basic laws of nature, kids grow up. Sometimes you want them to remain at age of three and four but they will become 14, 15, 16, 17. And as Mark Twain said, when I was nine, my father was a genius. When I was 19, he was a fool. Now I'm 29. I have a couple of kids of my own. And my father has brilliant advice. It's funny how much the old man learned in 10 years. <laughs> but they tend to grow up. <laughs> Life moves on. And thus... The celebration of opening new doors, both physically and emotionally, is really relevant to everybody sitting in this beautiful Shalamit auditorium. To address this, I want to share a few points that I hope can be relevant, meaningful, and maybe even practical, so that I speak not only in the abstract, but also in the concrete. And I want to begin with what would seem like a very enigmatic commentary, a very strange commentary, by one of the greatest commentators of the Torah, known as the Baal HaTurim. The Baal HaTurim is a commentary on Chumash that was authored by one of the great sages of Germany, and then who moved to Spain, he moved to Spain, his name was Rabbi Yaakov ben Usher, Jacob ben Usher. And he's known as the Baal Turim. He is considered one of the greatest halachic authorities in Jewish history. The author of one of the greatest codes of Jewish law known as the Tur, or the Arba Turim, the Four Rows, the foundation of the Shulchan Aruch. And he's known as Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Usher. His father was Rabbeinu Usher de Rosh. And he is Rabbi Yaakov, the Balaturim. He was born approximately 1268 and passed away in 1340. His commentary on Chumash, on Torah, has a very unique feature. What is unique about his commentary is that each time the Torah employs a word, he highlights each time the same word is used anywhere else in Tanakh. This is based on the principle that if the same word is employed in Tanakh, even in a completely different context, which seems completely disjointed and disconnected, there is a thematic relationship. 
It's one of the principles of Jewish learning, one of the methods, the formulas, the 13 methods of learning known as Gzeir Shava, which in contemporary language is the progenitor of Windows feature called copy-paste. In other words, when we see the same word used in Tanakh twice, we don't say God dictated the word twice. No! Just as in your own computer, you write it once and you copy-paste. Where did Bill Gates get this idea from? Gzeirishava. Lahavda. <laughs> it's a fascinating approach to Torah learning because it shows that to understand Tanakh, at least one dimension of it, you have to master all of it. You have to know all of it. So when you see a word, you zoom out or you zoom in. And you're like, where do I know this word from? Where did I see it? And knowing every time this word is mentioned gives you more clarity and depth in understanding the context of the word right here in this place. So if I don't know the whole Tanakh, I would never be able to do this. This is the fascinating feature that the Baal HaTurim always identifies in his commentary on Chumash. One such connection the Baal HaTurim makes in this week's portion. In Vayigash. It's one word. The word exists in Vayigash. And it's found one more time in the whole Tanakh. And the Balaturim Rabbeinu Yaakov wants to understand. Why is this word found in one more place in the Tanakh? And what is the connection? When at the surface. Not only do they seem disconnected. But actually paradoxical. The inside itself is beautiful. But the insight, send them my regards and then put your phone on vibrate after sending my regards. <laughs> the insight itself is a wonderful insight and very practical insight. But the insight is even more dazzling in its brilliance when we discover that all the cutting edge theories on childhood development, on educational psychology, on understanding children and even adults, is all based on this idea that the Baal HaTurim conveys, is intimated in this one word. What is it? At this point in the long, dramatic narrative that began in Vayeshev, continued in Miketz, and concludes in Vayigash, the Prime Minister of Egypt has taken... Binyamin, Benjamin, the youngest of the tribes, as a slave for supposedly stealing his silver goblet, his Gevi'ah HaKesef. Yehuda approaches the Egyptian prime minister, the Egyptian viceroy, and he pleads with him to let Binyamin go free, to let the young lad be emancipated. And the reason is, because he will not be able to return to his father, Yaakov, and tell him that Binyamin is God. Yaakov will not survive that suffering, that agony, after already losing Yosef. Yehuda cannot watch it. Yehuda cannot contribute to it. Yehuda cannot go back to his father without Binyamin. And therefore, in his plea to the prime minister, he begs him, let me become the slave. Let me bear the burden, the penalty of the theft. 
I will be your slave and let Binyamin go back home. And when Yehuda communicates this message, in Vayigash Memdalet Pasek Lamed Lamed of Genesis 44, 30 and 31, he says, and I quote, Va'ata, kivoyi el avdecha ovi vahanar einenu iti. When I come back to my father, your servant, and his child, his lad, Binyamin, is not with me, and his soul is intertwined with his soul. The soul of Binyamin is interconnected, interlaced. It's bound up. It's kshura. It's bound up in Yaakov's soul. When he will see that this child is not here, he will die. And your servants, we, me and my brothers, will have caused our fathers to fall into the abyss and go down into the grave with excessive grief. What is the key word? Every Pasuk has a key word. What is the key word in this Pasuk? No question. It's Kshura. V'nafshay. Kshura b'nafshay. His soul is bound up with his soul. Kesher, of course, means a knot, a connection, a link. These two souls are interconnected, interlaced, integrated. They're fused together. That's what a Kesher does. Kesher, a knot, creates fusion between two entities. These two souls are fused together. When Yaakov loses this soul, when he hears Binyamin remained a slave in Egypt, he will not be able to survive. They're inseparable. If Binyamin doesn't return, Yaakov can't continue to live. You have amputated his own soul. You have killed his own soul. Says the Balaturim, where else do we find the word kshura? You would think it would be a common word, but it's not. It's found in one more place. In the Balaturim's words, Beis b'mesayra. It's twice in the Tanakh. Beis b'mesayra. Beis b'mesayra means in the tradition of the Tanakh, you have this word only twice. Now we have Google, we have concordances, we have Eitzra Chachmas. It's not hard, you're looking for a word. The Balaturim, living in the 1200s, in the 13th century, I don't think he had Google, right? I think it was before Google, at least according to some opinions. So uh, you'll ask your kids about that. He, but he saw the Tanakh and he knew the word Kshur is there only once more. Where? And the answer is in Mishlech of Beis, in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Thank you. What do I do with it? Okay. It would be wonderful, but the shtender is a little slopey today. Thank you. Says King Solomon, Shleiman Melech says in Mishlech, Iveles Shura Belev Nar. Shevet Musar Yarchikeno Mimenu. Translation. Folly, Ivelis means folly, stupidity, iniquity, Mishagas, as your Bubba would say, shtick, ridiculousness. Ivelis, folly, Nairishkaiten. Now everybody understood. Okay. Folly is not a real word, but Nairishkaiten is like a real word, at least a real reality. Folly, I don't know who has folly today. Narishkaiten. 
Okay, now you're talking. Now it makes sense. Iveles, there is folly, kshura, that is bound up, believe nar, in the heart of a lad. Shevet musayarchi kenamimenu, the rod of discipline, will help remove this folly. What is the connection between the two kshuras? V'nafshay kshura b'nafshay, and Iveles kshura, Believe now, the only other time in Tanakh the word kshura is used. At the surface, they're actually saying opposite things. In Vayigash, what does kshura talk about? A father's soul is interconnected with a child's soul. Benjamin's neshama is bound up in Yaakov's neshama. In Proverbs, what is bound up in the child? Folly, stupidity, iniquity. Not his father's soul that's bound up with his soul. Therefore, the child needs to be disciplined. Not only are these two kshuras not similar, they're actually paradoxical. Says the Balaturim, in this usage of this word, twice in the Tanakh, the Torah is teaching us a profound lesson in education. May I say, maybe, the profoundest lesson in education may be the key to all education, the prerequisite, the foundation, the basis that underlies all functional, healthy, successful, extraordinary chinuch. And I'll quote the Balaturim. Beis b'mesoyre, it says twice kshura, hoche, here, v'idoch, the second time, ivelas kshura b'levnar. Mipnei she'ivaltoi kshura boy. Because folly is bound up in the heart of the youth, the only way to confront it is if the parent's soul is bound up with the child's soul. There's no way you will eliminate the second kshura without the first kshura. If the ivelas was not kshura belevnar, you don't need v'nafshay, kshura benafshay. But since ivelas kshura belevnar, says the Balaturim, there's only one way of confronting that truth, that fact. And that is v'nafshay, kshura benafshay. Since the foolishness is bound up in him, the only possible way to remove it is through the connection of souls. Now this is fascinating because if you look in Proverbs itself, it seems like there's one solution. Shevet Musar, the rod of discipline. But before that, the Torah uses the word kshura. The Balaturim says, the rod of discipline is based on kshura, on a connection, on a kesher. There has to be a knot that binds and bounds and fuses the two personalities. What does this mean? My dearest friends, sometimes we find or we observe our children making decisions that we find unfavorable. Sometimes these choices are not just unfavorable, but these choices in our minds are destructive, are foolish are not just counterproductive, but sometimes even dangerous. You may have a teenage daughter, 
a teenage son who may say things or do things that truly cause you deep, profound heartache, sleepless nights. And it doesn't only begin in teen years, even a young child, child in elementary school. But you're seeing things that are aggravating, that are disturbing behaviors, habits, tendencies, things that may be affecting their behavior at home, their performance in school, their social connections. Every family and every child, based on his or her unique life story, unique narrative, unique condition, unique choices. Very often a father once told me, he said, you know, when my boy comes home in the evening, when I hear the key to the door, I go upstairs. I say, why? He says, because I know that when I see him, I'm going to get so aggravated. Just looking at him causes me pain. Seeing the way he dresses, the way he carries himself, reminds me of his choices. And I don't want to get into a fight. I don't want there to be screaming in the house. I don't want to make him uncomfortable. So I just retreat to my bedroom. I lock the door. And I let him be. The father was very proud of himself. Instead of staying downstairs and declaring a third world war, when his son comes home at night, getting into arguments and counter-arguments, he wants serenity. He wants the kid to feel safe. He doesn't want confrontation. He avoids it like the plague. So he runs away into his bedroom. He was actually very proud of himself. No screaming, no hollering, no denigrating, no insulting. But the truth is, the Balaturim is telling him, you're missing the point. This child needs more connection. This child needs more of you, not less of you. This child needs more of a relationship with you, not less a relationship with you. On the contrary, when you are experiencing something that's causing you pain, yes, I know the human emotion is, I want to run away. I want to retreat. I want to disconnect. Fight or flight or freeze. And you have to have compassion for that urge. It's a human urge because the pain is profound. But once you have compassion and you allow yourself to experience what you're experiencing without repressing your feelings, your bodily sensations, your emotions, now allow your prefrontal cortex to get into the driver's seat and ask the question, what does this child need most? And the answer is, this child needs more of mommy, more of tati, v'navshoy, kshura v'navshoy. More of a relationship, more of a connection, more love, more empathy, unconditional love and unconditional pride. And the Balaturim says, because evel is kshura, the deeper the folly is embedded, is bound up. In the heart of the child, the deeper the benafshay, don't run, don't escape, don't flee, don't sever cords, don't disconnect, 
It's your attachment. It's your kesher. That is the source of the healing. I'm going to tell you a story in a different context, but it brings out the point so profoundly. I heard this from a son-in-law of the Seret Vizhnet Serebesh in Haifa. Naftali Karanra, actually, too, we would have a mitzvah together. He shared with me the story. He heard it from the original source. The rabbi, it was a rabbi in Haifa, he had a shul. Near the shul, there was a store, a clothing store, that was owned by an Israeli citizen living in Haifa, a secular Jew, who kept his store open on Shabbos. The rabbi of the shul asked him if he can close the store just for the morning hours of Shabbos. People come to shul out of respect for your neighbor. It's synagogue, it's a Bet Knesset, it's Shabbat. He said, no, I'm a secular Jew. I keep my store open on Shabbos. You have a shul, do your shul. The store was successful. It would attract people Shabbos morning. And it really bothered the rabbi. They would come out of shul and people were hanging out. The store really didn't create a positive environment. And he went to the Seret Vizhnitz Rebbe at the time. His name was Reboruch Hager of blessed memory. He passed away in the 1960s. And he asked him what to do about this person who's desecrating Shabbos publicly, Befahesi. And the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe looked at him and said, I want to ask you a question. Do you love this Jew? He said, absolutely not. I actually loathe him. In fact, how could I love him? He's desecrating Shabbos publicly. Despite my requests, he violates the Shabbos. He desecrates God and Judaism and Yiddishkeit and Shabbos, and he does it in public. I'm not even allowed to love him if I would want to. I have to loathe such a person. So the Seret Vizhnet Serebbe looked at him and said, I want to ask you a question. You say that the reason you hate him is because he desecrates Shabbos. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe he desecrates Shabbos because you hate him. How do you know that you hate him because he violates Shabbos? Maybe he violates Shabbos because you hate him. Which means you're the one who's responsible. He's like, what do you want me to do? He says, maybe if you would love him, he would stop violating Shabbos. He says, how do I love him? Figure it out. You're saying, it's it. maybe it's about you, not about him. He says, what should I do? He said, next Shabbos morning, go into him on the way to Shul, and tell him that you love him. He said, but I don't. He says, well, you have till Shabbos to work on that. Figure it out. He says, why should I love him? Because he's your brother. Because his soul is a piece of God, just like your soul. If you're genuine, do it for six months, every Shabbos morning. To his credit, this rabbi went in Shabbos morning. The owner of the store saw him and said, ah, lech me paw. You know, Israelis can speak Dugri, right? How do you say Dugri? Uh, the Americans have that word for it? Undiplomatically. He walks in. The man tells him what he wants to tell him. And he says, no, no, I didn't come here to ask you of anything. He says, so why are you here? Ratziti lagid lecha Shabbat Shalom, ani ohevotcha. Good Shabbos, I love you. He says, ma, tamashuga. 
you lost your mind, you went insane. He said, why do you love me? He said, you're my brother. You're a Jew, I love you. I want to hug you. He gives him a big hug. Came back the next Shabbos morning and he did the same thing. Next Shabbos, the same thing. Six months later, the store was closed. Had the Sarah Vishal Sirebbe not told him those words, for the rest of his life, he would have looked at himself and say, I am holier than thou. I am a righteous Jew. He is a wicked Jew. And he would have really felt comfortable about his holiness and religiosity. It would have never dawned on him once that it's not the person's Chilul Shabbos that created his hatred, it's his hatred that contributed to the Chilul Shabbos. He had to be taken out of his comfort zone. This is one of the hardest things in education. One of the hardest things in education is, we think education is about educating our children. It's true, but there's something much more true about education. Real education is about self-awareness. It's about educating myself. It's about growing up myself. It's about real awareness of who I am. I spoke to a teenager the other day. He says, you know, Rabbi Y.Y., these days it's so difficult to raise parents. I loved it. Because it's true, yeah. I have a friend, Rabbi Shimon Russell, he says, Tsar Gidl Bonham doesn't only mean the pain of raising children. It's Tsar Gidl Bonham. It's the pain of growing up through your children. Our parents tried to educate us. Didn't always work. Our spouses try to help us. Usually doesn't work. So what does God do? He sends us children. Your parents, you can run away from. Your spouse, send them to therapy, it works. Well, they'll send you to therapy. But what do you do with your children? Our children have that unique divine gift that they can help us transcend our comfort zones like no bunker. Because the love is very deep and therefore the pain is very deep. And therefore I say to you, my dearest friends, we live in a generation when our children are bringing out the best in us. Don't fear it. Yes, those of you who go to yoga and Pilates every morning, how many? Okay, you don't have to all raise your hands. Those of you who go to the gym or stretch or do other things, you know that stretching is not easy, but it opens you up. Psychologically, emotionally, we have to be stretched. Very often, our Judaism makes us smug. Sometimes our Judaism becomes a cover-up for truth. Did you understand what I just said? Sometimes Judaism could be a cover-up for truth. Meaning, instead of confronting my own skeletons, my own traumas, I blame it on God. Sometimes I use idealism to justify my fears and insecurities. And our children today in our generation are causing us to stretch emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, to open ourselves up to truth to go away from superficiality, to ask not what my neighbors expect of me, what my community members expect of me, what different family members will be happy and call nachas, what fits into the shidduch resume, seminary resume, community resume, but rather ask what my child really needs, 
what this child really needs. And to be able to say goodbye to a world of lies, of superficiality, of deception, and and really become connected to the soul of your child. Every child needs to be seen, and every child needs to feel soothed, and every child needs to experience safety, and every child needs to experience security, the four S's. Safe, secure, seen, soothed. Today in cutting edge psychology, one of the key disorders is called attachment disorder. What is attachment disorder? They're finding more and more that children and adults who can't function well suffer from attachment disorder. At those key years, those critical years when their primary caregivers needed to give them attachment, they did not have the attachment that they needed. And when I don't have the attachment I need, I don't have the security and the confidence and the resilience and the fortitude to be able to grow up as an independent, confident person, to be able to make healthy choices in my life and to be able to love myself and accept myself and then ultimately be a light onto the world as well. It's all in the words of the Balaturim. And connection, attachment is the key. It's the prerequisite for everything. Does your child feel connected? Does your child feel attached? Does your child feel understood? Does your child know that they can trust you? They can really confide in you? And it doesn't begin at 18. It begins at 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. My child has to be able to look at me and see in me Somebody that is akin to a best friend that they can trust me and confide in me and schmooze with me and share with me. They don't have to be your best friend, but you have to be their best friend. They don't have to be your best friend. You don't need your child to approve you. You don't need your child to compliment you. That's not what a child is for. Your child is not here to give you nachas and tell you what a good mom or dad you are. You know, mom, there's never been a mom like you. You're so beautiful and incredible and amazing and astounded and talented and charming too. And how do you choose such a wonderful husband? Wow. I mean, from all men in the world. What a winner. Right, You know, it's like the woman who tells her husband, you know, we're married for 28 years. I don't remember a compliment. Why are you laughing? He's going to get it tonight. Okay, I feel bad. You better have a good place to go out after this lecture. I'm just joking. So the husband looks at her and says, a compliment, of course. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. It's like, wow, what is that? He says, when I think about you, A, you're absolutely amazing. And you're awesome. B, beautiful. And the best. C, caring, charming, creative, charismatic. Her heart is melting. D, delightful, delicious, deep. Wow. E, honey, you're extraordinary. F, fantastic, fun, fabulous. G, 
You're great. You're gorgeous. And you're gewaldic. H. <laughs> you're hilarious. <laughs> Sweet as honey. She's like, wow, wow, wow. What about IJK? He says, I'm just kidding. And he's been missing since last Thursday. So if you see a guy roaming Cedarhurst Avenue, please report him, I don't know, to the Hevra Kaddish, or to the Shaimrim, or to the Mesaskim, or to the Mizamrim, or to the Chaveirim, or to the Mishairim. But, but please. There's complimenting my child. But that may not be what my child needs. In the famous five languages of love, just like you want to find out the love language of your spouse and yourself, you also need to find out the love language of your child. I think I'm giving my child what I think he or she needs, but it's not really what they're looking for. It's not really what they're craving for. And I have to have the humility to suspend my ego and to transcend my own expectations and ask myself how this child could feel connected I don't need my child to approve of me. You don't go to your child for compliments. It's going to be disappointing. Find yourself somebody else to give you feedback and validation and approval. Your child is not your best friend, but you have to be your child's best friend. He or she needs your approval and needs your validation and needs your understanding and needs your lack of judgmentalism and needs your empathy and needs your connection. And let me tell you something. You could send your children to the greatest and best therapists in the world. And some of them are wonderful people. But there's nobody that can do for a child what mommy and tati can do. Nobody in the world. No teacher and no principal. No therapist and no mechanechas, no mashpia, no rosh yeshiva, no rebbe, no tzaddik. Great people! But there's nobody that can do what a mommy and a tati can do. Because v'nafshoi kshuro v'nafshoi. So when you're seeing iniquity, when you're seeing folly, and it's embedded, you become more connected. You get down on the floor and connect to that girl, connect to that boy. Let them trust you and I have to listen. I have to know and let them know that I will be here through thick and thin and I will understand them. Very often our children, I shouldn't say often, but once in a while they start sharing with us experiences, problems, pain. Don't right away become the problem solver. This is the opportunity. Be curious. Be inquisitive. Learn more. Don't right away tell them how to feel. Nah, you're not really feeling this. It's not really happening. Don't do that. That's just teaching them that they can't really share everything. Right away I have solutions. Right away I know what's right and wrong. I want to be fully present to that relationship. I want to be fully tuned in. I want to listen to you. And listen, listen, listen. That's the key of kshura. The child knows here's a place, here's a person who's going to truly listen. But there's something else, you know, very often our children's behavior at any age triggers us in ways like nothing else triggers us. Even your mother-in-law. I don't know what's so funny about that. My mother-in-law doesn't trigger me at all. She's a saint. 
Tzadikis. She let her daughter marry me, that's how I know. But even she doesn't trigger you like your child triggers you. Call it chutzpah, call it, call it completely unacceptable behavior. Whatever it is, you sometimes observe the behavior of your child. And I'm so triggered. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm depleted. I'm exhausted. I fall into despair. I get sad. I get mad. I get it. But don't you realize these are the greatest opportunities for self-awareness? Instead of lashing out instinctively, turn inwards and become curious. Ask yourself, I have to ask myself, why was I triggered so profoundly? What just happened inside of me? Now sometimes you have to do things at the moment to protect your child, to secure safety, security, whatever that may be. But inside, instead of right away judging and taking all that anger and lashing it out at the child, can I go inwards and say, what just happened inside of me? What just came up for me? And the stronger your emotional reaction, the deeper the opportunity for growth. The reason God brought this child into your life is because of two things. Number one, you should raise him or her. And number two, he should raise you. Both. And this is important. If you are the parent of this girl in Shulamit or anywhere else, it means that you have what it takes. God doesn't make mistakes. If he gave me this child, it means that I, as a mother or a father, have the resources, what it takes to polish this diamond and bring the best out of this child. You say, it doesn't. I suffer from Asperger's. I'm detached. Fight or flight. My amygdala is undeveloped, underdeveloped. You know how many traumas I have to deal with? I get it. I get it. I know your skeletons. I have them too. But if this child was given to me, was given to you, it means here is an opportunity for me and for you to reinvent yourself, to rediscover your true neshama, to heal yourself in the process. Don't squander the opportunity. And the deeper the trigger, the more I'm getting anxious, the greater the opportunity for self-awareness. Be curious. Ask yourself, what just happened to me? Why was I just overwhelmed? Why did I get startled? Why am I so angry? Why do I have to eliminate this problem and have my child go to school right now? And if not, I will feel like an eternal, colossal failure. Why do I right away need a quick fix so that everything should look perfect in my home? Why? What is it that I'm trying to protect myself from? What is it that I never dealt with? And you'll be shocked by going through that journey and becoming more self-aware. My parenting becomes an experience of pnimius rather than chitzonius. It's not anymore about external repairs and remedies so that the house looks good for the neighbors and for, for the uncle and for the aunt and for the brother-in-law and for the shavabrachas and for the bas mitzvah. 
I'm actually tuning into the soul of the child, to the body of the child. This is not easy what I'm saying. We're Jews. And we have been trained certain ways. And we like to fix problems, right? And we want the house to run on a good schedule. And if there's a problem, we like fixing it. We like to do that in our jobs, with our computers, in our cars, in our marriages, and with our children. The problem is that souls are not machines. Every soul has a journey. And every soul has a unique infinite light. And yes, I want to teach my child discipline and structure and positive choices and how to make decisions and how to confront my own challenges. But if it's not based on if I'm not tuning into your soul, if I'm not tuning into your heart, if I'm not tuning into your challenge, if I'm not letting you be and grow from within, if I'm just trying to squash your energy and make it look good on the outside, what happens? I didn't deal with the person. I didn't help the person. I just covered up the wound through a band-aid and it's going to emerge a few years later. That's the difference between power and influence. Don't confuse power with influence. You don't need power over your children. You want to influence. Sometimes I use power, but it's a completely secondary tool to achieve the ultimate, which is chinuch, influence. Sfasemis writes, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, Remember the days of the world. Remember your history. Understand the cycles of each generation. The word shnois comes from the word shinui, change. Understand the changes from one generation to another generation. Our history is based on a Messiah, on a golden chain that goes back 3,333 years. That's a long time. They once asked a Chinese politician, what his opinion about the American and French revolutions are? He said, it's too early to tell. 250 years, it's a joke. But our tradition, it's not too early to tell. Moshe Rabbeinu lived 3,333 years ago, and I use that word, 33 years ago, accurately. This Shavuos is going to be 34 years. 3,334 years. Based off Memches, Tovshin Pei Beis. That's a long time. And we're proud of it. We celebrate it. We cherish it. We make sacrifices for it as our parents did, as our great-grandparents did, as our grandparents did, all the way back to the first generation of Jews that stood at the feet of Sinai, whose genes we all carry today. As the Gemara says, Tzibur loy meis, an individual can die. Klal Yisrael doesn't die. The Tzibur doesn't die. The body of the Jewish people is the same body that existed by Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, exists today. It was hard to believe when the Gemara said it, but today with DNA, we know it's exactly what's happening. Epigenetics, 
Your genes don't only carry the traumas of 2,000 years, that too. Your genes also carry the faith of 2,000 years, the resilience, the wisdom, the humor, the kindness, the mitzvahs, the power, the emunah. It's all there in the genes. Everything is there. The trauma too. And it's coming out. So on one level, Judaism is about a chain, consistency, perseverance. I once asked a rabbi, what's your mission statement in your shul? He said three things. I hatch them, I match them, and I dispatch them. The joke is over. That's it. We love the cycle, right? The conveyor belt. Yeah? The bris. Upshenish, ba mitzvah, bas mitzvah, yeshiva, masifta, seminary, eretz Yisrael, whatever, however, nusach, chaloyz, gather, you do it. Shaduchim, when is the shalom zacher? It's beautiful. We call it nachas. But what we're seeing today is that the conveyor belt is getting stuck. It's not moving smoothly for everybody. You also have to understand the changes of generations. Dr. Abraham Tversky, who recently passed away, once said, why did Noyach get drunk after the flood? What happened? He didn't drink till he was 600 years old. First time he said L'chaim. Dr. Tversky said, no, he always said L'chaim. He didn't realize that after the flood, everything changed. And the same amount of alcohol that before the marble worked, after the marble turned him into an inebriated human being. You have to know the changes of a generation. The Chayza of Lublin quotes Rebzusha of Anapoli, the great Hasidic master Rebzusha of Anapoli, who writes... The Mishnah says at the end of Tractate Saita, Before Mashiach comes, there's going to be different signs. One of them, Lots of chutzpah. You're nodding. It's you or your kids? Both. Okay. Next, Daughters will rise up against their mothers. Anybody? Nobody. Okay, great. Kala Daughters-in-law will stand up to their mothers-in-law. Anybody? Clandestinely, fine. Yirei chet yimasu. They will become disgusted with those who fear sin. Open your hearts. The whole world thinks, what does the Mishnah mean? People will be disgusted by anybody who has scruples, anybody who has ethics, anybody who has morals, anybody who's afraid of Hashem is going to be despised. He says that's a superficial interpretation. There's a much deeper interpretation. People will not be able to deal with a Yiddishkeit that's based only on fear of punishment. They're going to need a deep, intimate relationship of love and wholesome. Before Mashiach comes, the time there's going to be complete oneness, complete unity, complete fusion. A Judaism that is only about reward and punishment, paradise and hell, checklists. 
You did the right thing, you dressed the right way, you said the right words, you're going to paradise. Not you're going to the grand cosmic divine barbecue, and it's hot. Judaism that is based solely on anxiety and pressure and fear, negative fear. There is glorious fear, awe, reverence, but there's negative fear. Says People are going to become disgusted with it. Why? Because they feel there's something off in the relationship. Did it work for some people in the past? Maybe, I don't know. But he says there comes a time when people need a gula consciousness. Gula consciousness means they have to feel the oneness of Hashem. They have to feel that this relationship is one that fulfills me, that inspires me, that maximizes me, that brings out the best in me. God is my best friend, my biggest fan. He's crazy about me. He needs me, he loves me. I am his infinite light in this world. A Yiddish guy that is healthy physically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, spiritually. One that fuses body and soul, physical and spiritual, heaven and earth, inner and outer. One that is not afraid of emotions. One that is not afraid of body work. One that is not afraid of full integration. One that incorporates every aspect of your personality in a relationship that is full, whole, Honest, authentic, one in which I don't have to amputate any part of myself in my service to God. One that is holistic and all-inclusive and all-encompassing. One that has no hypocrisy in it and no superficiality in it. It's real, it's true, it's deep, it's authentic. My dearest friends, look around and you'll see. This is what every child and every teenager is yearning for today. And when your child comes home, not from Shulamit, but from another school, and talks to you about hypocrisy, what happened to you when you told your father about the hypocrites in school? What did he say? I don't know about your father, but some fathers whitewash it. Eh, Don't do it. Your children will not trust you anymore. Kids are very smart. (laughs) They're very deep. They see through things. Don't whitewash hypocrisy. Don't lie. Don't sell God. They don't want a God that's on sale. Don't sell Judaism. Don't feel the pressure to make things look good when they're not good. Because they know the truth. And a Judaism that's based on superficiality and dishonesty will never take root in the hearts of today's Jewish youths who are getting ready to welcome Mashiach Tzidkenu and Geula. The awakening that's happening now, the crises that we are experiencing is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for going deeper into ourselves and finding out what type of relationship with Hashem you really have and who I really am as a person. And can I really celebrate a soul And can I really tune into my child's journey and my child's light without judgmentalism and without running away because of the pain? Can I remain present in the relationship? What's happening is people need to feel that it's as real as it gets. It's as deep as it gets. I could find my full intimacy, my full presence, my full emotions, my entire heart and brain in this relationship.
And I can't give that to you if I don't give that to myself. I can't be in tune with your soul if I'm not in tune with my soul. Which is why I say to you that the greatest and hardest part of education is your own education. The more I educate myself, the more I'm aware of what's going on in me, the more I'm really attuned to my own deepest honesty, the more I could really be open to the journeys of my children and to really be able to embrace them, love them, and be proud of them and believe in them so that they can come to believe in themselves. I want to conclude with this little story. It was just a few weeks ago. I was at a Shabbaton in Connecticut. A young man came over to me Shabbos afternoon, and he shared with me what a difficult time he had growing up in our school system. He grew up in New York. He told me by the time I was 14 years old, I was expelled from eight yeshivas. I'm like, why so many? He said, everybody wanted me. I'm like, I like the attitude. How did you get that? I love it. Expelled eight times because everybody wants you. I love the attitude. Teach it to me. He says it was, oi. He said, nobody can deal with him. He was lebedic and wild and mischievous. And literally expelled from school after school. And he said, and his father was even more harsh than the principals. He came home. <laughs> And his father would punish him double the amount because of what happened in school. Instead of getting the safety and the embrace of his father, he knew that his father he can't trust. At the age of 14, his father put him on a plane, said, I can't deal with you anymore, go with Israel. So he's a 14-year-old in Israel alone. He goes to Shulam B'nai Brach. He goes into the Slonim of Shulam B'nai Brach. There's a 95-year-old Jew davening. He would daven four hours every day. His name was Reb Usher Arkovich. He was a partisan in the Second World War. He survived. He got married. He never had children. His wife was ill for the last 10 years of her life, and he was taking care of her. And at that point, she passed away. And he was a 95-year-old Jew without a generation following him, alone. And he would daven in shul. He would talk to God like you're talking to your best friend. And he sees this 14-year-old boy in shul, and it was late morning. Nobody else was there. And he says, Bakr, what are you doing here? He tells him, he says, I haven't had luck in any school system. I was expelled from one and another and a third and a fourth, eight systems. And my father sent me off to Israel. I'm forlorn. And he tells me, this boy tells me, says, Reb Asher, the partisan, 95 years old, looks at me and says, you know, we say every day in Ashrei, Literally, it means God wants to tell people about his own strength and his own royalty. But he said, the the great Hasidic master, the Magad of Lechevich, gave another interpretation. He said, you know why we talk so much about God's infinity and greatness and majesty? Because God wants that every one of us should notify, should tell. To every person you meet, teach every person you meet his own strength. 
Teach every girl you meet her own majesty, their own beauty, their own glory, their own profundity, their own holiness. We talk about God's greatness, not because He needs our compliments. Because if God is great, it means He didn't make a mistake when He created you. If God is omniscient and omnipresent, it means that when He created you, He was making a statement that the world is incomplete without your contribution. It's a mitzvah. To let every person you meet know, Gvuraisov, make them aware, make them cognizant of their own power, of their own fortitude, of their own majesty, of their own creativity, of their own inner infinite dignity and light and gift. Make each person aware of their royalty and aristocracy and glory. And this old man looks at this young Bachadon. And he says, whatever happens, you never forget your gvura. Never forget your strengths. He tells me, Rabbi Jacobson, I got into another yeshiva. Six months later, I was expelled. I got into a tenth school. A half a year later, the principal said, you're not for us. I'm 15 years old. I can go into the Guinea's Book of World Records. Ten yeshivas expelled me at the age of 15. Not bad. And I have nobody to turn to. I don't have a father to call. I was so lost in the world, I decided I can't live any longer. The pain was just too deep. The loneliness, the solitariness was just too profound. And he says, one morning, I went to Yerushalayim, number 11. It's a tall building. I went to the roof. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm pacing at the edge of the roof, about to jump and take myself out of my agony. And suddenly I have a flashback of that conversation I had one year ago when this old Jew, a slum in Mechosid, Reb Osher Arkovich, told me, Whatever happens, never forget about your strength. And I tell myself, you know, before I jump, I first have to become aware of my strengths. And then I'll make a decision. I walk back. I go down. I get my life together. He says, here I am today, married, with three beautiful children, extraordinary wife. I built a truly successful business. I'm listening to him. Tears are streaming down his eyes and my eyes. And I think to myself, would have Reb Usher ever known the impact his words had on that morning in a slum in Meshulam B'nebrak to a 14-year-old boy? Could have he imagined that he literally saved a life from suicide? Friends, don't be stingy with words. Don't be stingy with gestures. Don't be stingy with hugs. Don't be stingy with embraces. Don't be stingy with letting every person you meet know about their strengths, their beauty, their amazing gifts. The fact that they are, their very being, 
is already a priceless gift. It's a manifestation of Hashem in this world. Every soul is a chilek, eleikami, mal, mamish. This is any person. And what about your own children? Never take your eyes off that target. Because when I believe in these kids, I allow them to believe in themselves. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.